Who went to the uh, video store in the 90s on Friday nights? Who did that? Who's old enough to do that? Brady, you're not, no. You've seen it online, I don't think so. Even to this day, I can still remember the smell and the sounds in the blockbuster where we rented our movies. Almost every Friday night, my parents would bring us to Blockbuster and we get to pick out a family movie to watch with a bag of chips and a bottle of pop. That was what we did probably three out of four Fridays every month for many years. And around the store were, um, if you guys remember, VHS or DVDs, depending on when you went, sorted, uh, they, were, they were on racks and they were sorted by genre. And the, what was on the outside ring? It was new releases. Yeah, see, Chris, yeah, see, he knows, right? And then the inside racks were what? It's old stuff, right? Older movies, and so they were sorted by genres in the middle. And year after year, I would see a particular movie that I was interested in. I knew I was interested in it because of all of the ads for its release that I had seen on TV, as well as the TVs inside Blockbuster that showed trailers every time you went, right? Of course, I was never allowed to watch this movie until much, much later due to it being rated R, rated R for significant violence. So I want you to let me know if you know what movie I'm talking about here. It's the year 2029, and the Earth has been ravaged by the war between the human resistance and a company that creates artificial intelligence named Skynet. Terminator. The movie opens with Skynet sending back a shape-shifting robot called the T-1000 with one mission, to go back to 1995 and to kill the re resistance leader named John Connor when he's a kid. The, the human resistance had an answer. They would send back their own version of a robot called the T-800, who was played by who? There you go, Arnold. In 1995, we meet Sarah Connor, and she's a detainee at the Pescadero State Hospital. And the reason for her incarceration is because of her fanatical efforts to prevent something called Judgment Day. And what's Judgment Day? You guys remember? It was when Skynet went online and AI gained sentience. And upon realizing that they had made a mistake in creating this AI, and this has nothing to do with what well, okay, this is. A, um, upon realizing that they had made a mistake in creating this AI, the machines incite a nuclear holocaust to destroy humanity and rule the earth without resistance. And so, yes, you said the name of the movie. It is Terminator, actually Terminator 2, Judgment Day. And for me, it was the first example of how rare it was that a sequel could be better, better than the original, just slightly better. I'm not sure what year I actually ended up seeing this movie, but what I do realize today is that this movie, along with other movies like The Matrix, have actually informed my generation about what the end of the world looks like. It's like our generation's version of Left Behind, the book series that was written as entertainment, but somehow went on to inform the eschatology of an entire generation. Over the years, I have come to understand how much of the Terminator has stuck in the minds of my generation. People my age or a little older or younger believe that the world with, would end with some sort of nuclear war. Of course, that probably has more to do with the Cold War, but for, the, for us, that was not on our minds or on our radars, and so, Terminator, Terminator 2 um, influenced that kind of view, right? And so what it says to me is this kind of theological point. I think many of us here as human beings believe that we, we are the ones who will bring humanity to an end, either with some sort of nuclear war or worldwide pandemic or maybe the earth burning up or artificial intelligence robots replacing us as human beings, right? Who, who, who would say that they've entertained at least one of those views, right? They'll gain sentience, they'll take it over, something, right? Now, it's very debatable about what AI will do to our world, but this much is true. The Bible teaches us that Jesus' return, his perusia, will not be triggered by us. The only thing that will trigger Jesus' return is our Father's sovereign plan, our Father in heaven, who is the author of time, he who knows the date and the hour when all of this will come to an end. And so we will conclude um, our sermon series on the Olivet Discourse today. And let's turn to uh, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. In this passage today, in today's passage, we're going to be looking at the biblical judgment day, not the movie. 
And we're going to see a stark image. You know, we've been studying Matthew for a while now, and we have seen Jesus in a, in a number of lights. You know, we've seen him as meek and mild. We've seen him as uh, serving and loving. We've seen him as despised and rejected, he as healer, as the one who does miracles. But today we're going to be shown a different image of Christ, not as our suffering servant or as our Messiah, but as our holy judge. As it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it is God who will judge the secrets of men through and by Christ Jesus. He will judge the intentions of our heart, and it'll be Jesus who has been given the authority to do that. And so let's read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 uh, together, and um, you can just follow along in your Bibles. I'm reading from the ESV. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me then they will also they also will answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you then he will answer them saying truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life Let's, uh, let's open in prayer. Holy Spirit, thank you for this text that you have given to us. Just pray that your spirit would teach us and guide us. Help us to be convicted. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be excited for your return. Help us to have uh, a holy type of fear that takes serious your return as well and the judgment that you will bring. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to go through the verses in order and see what God is teaching us this morning. And we'll start by looking at verse 31, which says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 reminds us of this great truth. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Church, it is important to remember that when Jesus returns, it will be simultaneously a glorious but also a frightful thing. For us as believers, I believe there will be a sense of relief, but I think there will also be a sense of fear and reverence as we witness Christ's return in all his glories with his angels by his side. I don't anticipate that we will see the sky crack open, and the Lord of ages with his angels, I don't imagine that we'll look at that and not feel every emotion imaginable. Because for us, it will be the most glorious things that we will witness with our own human eyes, right? In Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56, we read the story of Stephen being stoned. And just as Stephen is about to be stoned to death, he says this, Full of the Holy Spirit, 
Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So as Christians, we believe, and the Orthodox view is that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he took his seat on the throne of God at the right hand of God, with the right hand being the seat of honor, right? Yet we read here that when, his, when the Son comes back, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So what does it mean, right? Is there, is there confusion? Is he sit down and then stand back up and then sit down again? What, what's the, is there a sequence to this? And what we're seeing here is a final completion of a, another role for Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11 teaches us this. It says, Therefore God has ex- highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so, that, so at the name of uh, Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Um, Jesus was glorified as King and as Messiah because of his death and resurrection, but one part of Jesus' ministry that has not been fully realized yet is his ministry as judge, as judge. When it says that Jesus will sit on his glorious throne, I want us here to imagine this morning a picture of a magisterial judge with his judgment robe on who enters into the courtroom to bring about judgment in the case that he is overseeing. Uh, There was a song, a Christian hip-hop song called Off the Hook, and it's a story about a young man who gets arrested, and it's all, uh, um, I guess, imagery. But he talks about this picture of uh, the judge walking into the courtroom to preside, and the, pers- the, the prosecutor is called Judge Law, or sorry, uh, Lawyer Law, right? Anyways, he calls the judge Chief Justice Supreme Judge Elohim, right? Now presiding. In Revelation 19, verses 11 to 14, Jesus' return as judge is corroborated here. It says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. What's a diadem? Not crowns, right? And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robed dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heavens, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So with his angels by his side, dressed in white to illustrate his righteousness, Jesus, who is also called the names Faithful and True and the Word of God, will one day return in righteousness to make war and to judge. So let's keep reading in Matthew to, to keep unpacking what this judgment looks like. Verses 32 and 33 say, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And so here we get this image of Jesus the judge, Judge Jesus, subpoenaing all of the nations to gather before him in court. A subpoena is a written command to come to court for those who have never been subpoenaed, I guess or if you've never watched uh, any movie with uh, police or courtroom stuff. The people, all of the nations are gathered, called to gather before him in court. And so when we think about this in eschatological terms, it's somewhat hard to know when this takes place. I know some of us here are currently studying Revelation. But my understanding of this is as follows. What we learned a couple weeks ago is, number one, Jesus returns with his angels at the trumpet call and his people are raptured from the earth. They're created into new beings. After that, we see in the text that Jesus pours out his, his wrath on all of the inhabitants of the earth. We see plagues hitting the earth and nature undoing itself as earthquakes happen and the sky falls and waters turn into blood, etc. Basically, Egypt 2.0, right? Except it's not local, it is universal, right? And number three, when Jesus is done, he then gathers everyone in front of him to judge them. And so you can hold the sequence loosely in your hands, as sometimes it's hard to understand the exact order. I don't think the text is given to us to nail down the exact order, but we know 
that at the end, we will be held accountable for what we've done. When we see in the text here, all the nations, it's, it's important for us in this case to understand that everyone who has ever lived will be gathered in front of Judge Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Leon Morris in his commentary says, Ultimately, every person on earth will be called to account for his or her use of the opportunities of service experienced through life. And so church, I, I want you to hear me very clearly, clearly this morning. One day you will meet your maker. One day you will meet your maker. You will look him in the eyes and you will personally give him an account for all of the choices, all of the decisions that you have made in life, whether good or evil. The things that we did do, the things that we did not do that we were supposed to do. And I pray that as we think about this, that we take this truth very seriously. You will meet your, you will meet your maker. You will meet your maker. Then Jesus shifts the gears a little bit. And so he moves away from this picture of the returning judge and he shifts over to something that's a little bit more familiar to us, which is that of a shepherd. So where in the scriptures is Jesus called a shepherd? Just off the top of your heads. What's that? Psalm 23, okay, good. Where else? John 10. It's like 15 verses of him explaining in what ways he is the shepherd. But my favorite passage actually on this topic is in Ezekiel 34. And so just, I'll give you a second to turn there. I'm just going to jump around to a couple of different verses there. And in Ezekiel 34... Yahweh is addressing the shepherds of Israel and accuses them of not taking care of his people. And so in verse 2, he says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. After many verses of him explaining all the examples that they have selflessly chosen to not care for his sheep, in verses 11 to 12, he says that he will become their shepherd. He says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. Then he goes on to verse 13 and says, I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. Are we still talking about sheep here? Or? Are we still talking about sheep? Or Verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. So this, this image, these images of, of, of sheep and, and um, the pastures and... and um, Shepherding, it gets lost in our culture, but it's important to understand that in those days, sheep and goats would graze together during the day. You had a shepherd, and he was responsible for one flock of sheep and goats. However, at night, the shepherd would go to the flock, and he would separate the goats and the sheep. The, sleep, the sheep slept outside, while the goats had to be brought inside for shelter at night. So in verse 17, he goes on and says, As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Right? And so when, when uh, Jesus is speaking in Matthew 25, he is, he is using language that has been used already. This is another example of recapitulation, right? This is another example of how Jesus is, and you get to, the, to Revelation, and it's built on this very thick foundation of text that has been spoken for thousands of years, right? Verse 17, he says, or sorry, verses uh, 22 to 24 says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. 
He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So who is he talking about here? Who is he talking about? The root of David, right? David is not going to be resurrected only to be a shepherd, right? He is speaking about Jesus himself. So by the time we get to John chapter 11 or 10, verse 11, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. We should not be surprised because this is not new language that Jesus is inventing. He is using illustrations that's common from their lives. And he is using words spoken through the prophet Ezekiel to illustrate that he is the promised shepherd who will indeed take care of his people. And so what we need to remember here is that as human beings, we all graze in the same land, so to speak. We live together on the earth. We dwell with one another. We work with one another. We share the same resources, same government. We drive on the same roads. We shop in the same stores. We breathe the same air, eat the same food, go to the same doctors. Up until the very end, many of us will appear the same, human beings in fragile bodies sharing the same space. And yet in the end, judge and shepherd Christ will divide us into two groups because he knows us, right? John 10 says that I know my sheep and my sheep know me. My sheep know my voice and they follow me, right? Jesus will divide us into two groups. To the believers who Yahweh calls the sheep of my pasture, he will place them in the position of honor, a.k.a. his right hand. And to the unbelievers who Yahweh calls the goats, they will be placed in the position of dishonor and placed on the left. Now, I don't want us to read too much into why it's sheep and why it's goats. I think the illustration is basically that they're are two types of animals within one flock. I don't want us to start diving into the zoology and the microbiology of why sheep are better than goat. There's no, right? I don't think it's that deep. <laughs> there's, a, there's an illustration to be made here, and the point is that he will one day separate us. And so in verse 34, Jesus goes on to clarify what this honor looks like for those on his right. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so as we heard in in communion this morning, there is blessing to be found in Christ, right? And there is an inheritance that is being stored up for us. Just in this one verse, I see four major truths, four big blessings that really you've probably heard before, but I just want to remind you again as we forget, we tend to forget First, for those who forget, the name of this series in the book of Matthew, you guys remember what the name of the series is? We don't really use it. We haven't said it in a while. The name of the series, not just the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember? Letters from the King. That's what it was. We kind of just moved on from that, but that was the intention from day one. And the reason we chose that is because we established the point that Matthew is trying to illustrate in in his Gospel, that Jesus is the rightful King of Israel. Yet not once until now does Jesus actually refer to himself as the king. Have you noticed that? Then the king. It's the first time he's referring to himself as king. First time. Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is amazing and totally epic. We are used to Jesus speaking in parables and in really fuzzy ways. Yet Jesus is being very literal and very serious here, right? So he is the king. And we ought to take that seriously. Second thing we see here is Jesus reminds us that we will be blessed by his father. So unlike the word king, which is not that common in Matthew, but is more of a concept, we are reminded of of this second word, uh, which is father. In Greek, the word is patir, but the language that Jesus spoke was Aramaic, which is the word Abba. The word Abba is used 44 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it teaches us this very truth, that Jesus came into the world to do the will of his Father, and the will of his Father was to reconcile us back to him. This is why Paul in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So church, remember this morning, we get to cry out to Abba God because Jesus made it so through his death and resurrection, right? The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father. And then he says, inherit the kingdom. That's the third point, because we were adopted by our father God and we are now considered his sons and daughters, not like sons and daughters, not normal people who just have the privileges of sons and daughters. We are considered his actual sons and daughters. And because of that, this means that we are now also heirs to his kingdom. Galatians chapter 4, verse 7 says, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are heirs now. And I don't want us to miss that and to celebrate that. And the fourth truth that we see here is um, we have to notice that the inheritance we will receive is his kingdom. But we also notice when it was prepared for us. What does it say there? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? What does it say? The foundation of the world. Now, some may recognize this as sounding very similar to another passage, which is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And so I eagerly remind you again this morning, church, Jesus' return is the final chapter of one long story of redemption that Yahweh has been knitting and executing from times past. I want to say that it's the final chapter, but final implies ending, right? And yet we know that what Jesus has prepared for us has no end. It had no start. It has no end. We, we are in the middle of that story, but his plan is part of who he is. And if we understand him, he is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the... He, there is no beginning, though, right? God did not have a start. There was no time before God. There wasn't a time when God did not exist and then existed. He just was, right? And so I think we can marvel at that for a long time and not really get anywhere with it. He had no start. He will have no end. And one day it'll be the same for us. And so continuing on in the text, we are now brought to Jesus' explanation of what makes sheep sheep and what makes goats goats. For those who are familiar, verses 35 to 46 represent some of the most controversial and hard texts in the Bible. And these verses have been hijacked by many, many people to illustrate a type of salvation that comes from works. And so before we start to look at our responsibilities as Christians, we must remember again this morning, based off of our communion this time this morning, we must remember that salvation is a free gift offered to us by Jesus Christ. Amen? And though freely offered... It was not freely acquired. In fact, it was extremely expensively acquired at the cross when Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price by shedding his blood on our behalf. The book of Matthew itself does not teach salvation by works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. And when deciding what to name their baby, the angel told Mary to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will what? Save his people from their sins. This passage this morning then does not teach us about what we must do to earn salvation, This is what Leon Moore says. Jesus is not saying that these people whose good lives have earned them salvation as their right. He is saying that God has blessed them and brought them into his kingdom. And he proceeds to cite evidence that shows that they do, in fact, belong in that kingdom. There lies lies, uh, the evidence that God has been at work in them. Right? So I think he uses an illustration from this really obscure author. And he says, um, how does he say it? Um, I know it's rained because the ground is wet, right? I know it's rained because the ground is wet. And so we know we're saved by the works we do, right? We're not saved by our works, but we know we are saved by our works. If that, do, you guys, do you guys get that? It's a very fine line to walk. But salvation in Christ has evidence. There is proof. Another way is to reckon it back to Chris's sermon from last week. Last week we learned that the responsibility of Christians is to produce evidence of our salvation in Christ. 
This week points us to the actual point when Jesus judges us for that evidence, right? For those who were here last week, we learned about the great call to believers to steward and to use and to invest the many resources that we have been blessed with in our lives. And it's different for all of us. But at the end, we will be brought to account for how we have made use of the time and the other resources we've been given. And so for the sheep on his right, this is how Jesus says our lives ought to look. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And so first we see here that here are some good examples of what are considered good investments of the resources that God has blessed us with. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, and visiting those who are sick or in prison, right? We would say that those are fundamentally loving things to do. Except what is confusing is that Jesus isn't saying, for when you saw someone else who was hungry, you gave them food. Jesus is using the first person words, I and me. He says, for when I was hungry, you gave me food, right? And so anticipating their confusion, he asks the question ahead of time, knowing what they will ask. And he says, then the righteous will answer them saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, right? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? The king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So just as a reminder, those speaking here are those on his right, his sheep, who he calls the righteous. And they're basically asking Jesus, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or help you at all? Here, Jesus introduces us to the interconnectivity of the kingdom. And a few weeks ago in discipleship, we learned about a theological concept called union with Christ. Who was there for that? Yeah, just a couple of us, right? Union with Christ. Uh, can be a, a complicated topic, but we discuss the reality that anyone, anyone who genuinely believes in Jesus is forever connected to him, united to him, tied to him. Because Jesus identified with us by becoming a human being and dying in our stead, and his spirit now dwells with us, we are permanently in Christ, forever and ever in Christ in us. That is the very short version of what can be a complex theological truth, and I suggest that you take time to study it on your own. And Ephesians and 1 Peter are two great examples of these pictures of being with Christ and of Christ and in Christ and Christ in you and Christ with us. And right, there's this connection that we have to Jesus that will never be broken. There's a forever bond, for lack of better words. But what we didn't talk about that week, mainly because it wasn't the main point of the study, is that union with Christ also leads to union with Christ's body, a.k.a. our fellow believers. And so in the same way that the head and the body cannot be separated, which I think we can clearly understand from the text about Jesus and the church, right? The groom and the bride cannot be split. The head and the body can't be split. If we are in union with Christ, then we must also view ourselves in union with his people, and so it's not that the hand has a direct connection to the head alone, but the hand also has a connection to the other hand, and the other feet, and the other cells, and so on in the body. We are one. We are one. And so what Jesus is teaching us here, that whatever we do to other people, we do it to him. For example, in Acts chapter 9, we learn about a young man named Saul who is persecuting the church. In verses 1 to 2, it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so what happens to Saul on the way to Damascus? Who shows up? Jesus shows up and he says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Saul falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. What does he say? Why are you persecuting my people? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Now, are they persecuting him? Are they putting Jesus in prison? Are they putting him in prison? Are they, are they, are they stoning him to death? It's his church. 
He says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We know for a fact that Paul is literally having Christians thrown in prison and stoned to death. And yet, Jesus says twice here, you are persecuting me. And so the shorthand version of this is if you persecute his, peace, his people, you persecute him. It's like a husband and wife. If you attack his wife, you attack the man, right? And vice versa. Or a mama bear and a baby bear. You attack the baby, you're going to get your face clawed off by mama bear. There is a union that will never be broken. And for those in the room who have older children, maybe who have moved out or have gotten married, things have changed, but things will never change. They will always be your babies. Your wife or your husband will always be them. And in the body of Christ, Jesus and his people are one. They are one. We are one with him. And so that's why in verse 40, Jesus says, and the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And so it's important to note then what our responsibilities are if we are to produce evidence of our salvation in Christ. On judgment day, Jesus, like any other judge, will present evidence, right? Like any other judge. We don't just get brought in and then sentenced. People, our lawyers are, are, are called to produce evidence and to produce arguments and produce witnesses for what they're trying to prove or disprove. And when we are brought before the Lord, our judge, evidence will be presented. And for the goats on his left, Jesus will produce evidence, actual evidence of people who have created a lifestyle out of seeing the needs of others and regularly and intentionally not meeting them. Jesus will judge sinners as though they themselves did not feed Welcome, clothe, or visit himself. Of course, these people also reject Jesus himself, opting the road to God's wrath by not believing in Jesus, the Son himself, right? So it's not just how he treats people, but also their fundamental belief. But as Christians, we have to understand that we don't divide the two. Fundamental belief leads to fundamental life and behavior. For these people, in verse 41, Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If we go to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, we see this very scene depicted. Verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Right? What's the, what are those books? It's the books. It's the books of it's the books of our actions, right? Um, if you're into bookkeeping, I don't know who is into booking. If you know what bookkeeping is, or you do it for a career, books are records of transactions, money in, money out, right? And then it says here. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Right? And so we think about hell sometimes, and maybe we'll address this next week during the Q&A, but we think about hell sometimes, and we picture uh, Looney Tunes, and it's like, uh, who's, who's, who's the devil in Looney Tunes? It's like a, it's a version of Sylvester, I think, right? Where he's dressed up in... He he's, he's the you know the red costume and he has the horns and we think about hell as uh, Satan's playground where Satan has dominion and his demons are there at his left and right and doing the things that he wants and you get sent to hell which usually goes down through an elevator and uh, you get there and Satan is pouring out his wrath on you and punishing you and you know poking you with pokey things and whatnot but the scriptures teach us that Satan is not lord of anything. The Lord of hell is Jesus himself. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. He has the keys to those whose names are written in the book of life. And at the very end, after he judges our actions, and when he sees that our name is not written in the book of life, death, Hades, Satan, demons, 
And those who have sinned against him and whose name is not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. And the scriptures teach us that the smoke of their torment rises to the clouds forever and ever. It's not a one-off. It's not a 10-year sentence and then you're free. It is forever. And that's why it's called the second death. You die here and then you die there. But when it's called the second death, it doesn't end. It's forever, right? Church, this, this should cause us to pause and reflect. It should pause us, it cause us to pause and reflect. There is a great consequence for those who reject Jesus. And for those who claim that they've accepted Christ and yet refuse to bear fruit for him. Right? I think we can easily point our fingers at those who, uh, you know, maybe are atheists or, you know, uh, worship at a, you know, in a satanic cult or something like that. And we think that the, the hell is, is, is kept for people like that, for Paul Bernardo who got moved to a medium security prison or whatever, right? Whatever, whatever name you want to conjure. We think it's for Adolf Hitler, these really awful people. But what we see in this text is that there are people who will be sentenced and they will say, what happened? Didn't we, we cast out demons in your name, right? We did all these great things for you. Why don't you know who I am, Right? And so we who uh, claim to follow Jesus have to question ourselves. I'm not saying doubt. I'm saying we have to question ourselves and remind ourselves of the gospel to see if we are of the faith. And then we have to graduate from mere belief into belief that leads to living, right? So if we call ourselves Christians and yet we are refusing by the power of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit for him, we have to conclude that maybe we are on the other side, right? The call to that is to repent, as God's people, we are called to obey, period. And as Jesus says it bluntly in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And so, yes, there is a place for genuine faith. I'm not saying that you have to do things to be saved. But if you claim to be a believer of Jesus, prove it. We have to prove it, right, with our deeds. Not just truth, but also our deeds. And so we must ask ourselves regularly, what are these commands, and we have to submit to them. In the context of today's passage, we can see that the evidence that Jesus is looking for is actually the fruit of loving other people. Lately, I've been reading through 1 John. And as you know, or some of you may know, instead of reading the Bible for with, like, I really struggle with like structured reading plans where you know, you're trying to get through the Bible. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I struggle with it personally. So some of you know, instead of reading for with, Sometimes I get stuck in the same book for a really long time, and I stay there, and eventually I get bored and move on, but I, sometimes I just can't get away from it, and I'm just listening to the same audio or reading it, and it comes up again and again, and almost like until you freeze me, right? Like, sometimes we need width, but sometimes we need de depth, as we can easily miss the point. For those who've read this book, you know that First John is a powerful book, and it's powerful because it walks a very tight line. On one hand, you get verses like 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, that says, whoever says that I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, right? Really, uh, really tough verses to stomach, really hard things to read, and um, not something that you can just read casually and move on with your life after reading it, right? It's not um, something you can be cavalier about. But then we also see verses like 1 John verses, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, which says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, church, we must learn how to walk in that space. There's a space there where we are filled with strong zeal to obey Jesus' command and follow him, and yet not being overwhelmed by perfectionism, Right? There's a space that we can walk in where we aim to produce evidence of, of our salvation, yet not trying to do it in our own strength. There's a space where we are called to walk, where we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, while also trusting that he who started a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus, right? It's not one or the other, it's both. Effort while leaning on his grace. Effort while trusting his spirit, right? It is understanding that when you do sin, that there is a biblical way to handle it. It's not just about achieving perfection. It's about even handling the sin in a way that honors God. 
handling sin in a way that honors God. Not if I sin, but when I sin, how do I respond? What does repentance look like? I know that that rope is tight and sometimes feel impossible, but I pray that our church learns this way. We are called to faithfully pursue holiness without falling into despair that we are not yet perfect. One major component of living holy is understanding that our actions towards others are just as important as the things we do alone. And sometimes as a Reformed Baptist church, we can get really caught up in those private disciplines while not focusing on how well we are loving people. We can get really trapped into reading the Bible and doing devotions and praying and fasting and keeping to ourselves this, all the stuff that we do when nobody's looking. But when we're around people, we don't know how to live. First John chapter 3 really nails this on the head. Let's look at the evidence that God is looking for in, this, in, this, in, in chapter 3, verse 10. This is what it says. By this, it is evident who are children of God. You guys want to know what the evidence is? And who are children of the devil? This is the evidence. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We are called to love God and love our neighbor. And you can't claim one and not the other, Right? Because if we hate our brother, then who do we hate? We hate God, right? And so to close off church, I want to address something and leave you with a question this morning. After talking to many of you, I know that many of us are tired, that we are exhausted from work, from raising children, exhausted because we mostly struggle uh, with rest, exhausted because we are dealing with people that take everything we have, exhausted because sin has a grip on our hearts. If you have noticed... Um, maybe not this morning, but we are a church mainly of young families. We're missing some people today. Young families, young adults. There are many young parents in our church. And if you look around, there isn't a single teenager, right? We are definitely of a very particular demographic. Most of our children have single-digit ages, which in other words makes it hard to do more. I know that many of you struggle with a type of constant guilt, guilt that you can't do more or that you can't give more. I know that many of you are guilty that you show up to church tired or late, guilty that you struggle to make it, um, make time in the week to see one another. I know that a lot of you are guilty that you can't go to prayer meeting or that your homes are too messy to host one another and guilty that uh, you simply just don't want to because you're too tired. Of course, this doesn't apply only to young parents, but it's common for everyone, right? And so I want to leave you with something that I hope is freeing. Yes, we need to love one another, and yet, church, there's grace for us. There's grace for you. This week, I was having a conversation with John, and uh, he's not here. I feel bad talking about him, but um, he was lamenting to me about how he struggles to schedule. Who, who can relate to that? You feel like you have a million things you want to do and only half a million units of time to do it, right? Um, he, he says that he, he struggles because he's so tired he gets home from work and he feels like he has nothing left to give. You know, after you get the kids down, you're at, you know, 5% battery. So after a short conversation, we shared wisdom and had some laughs. I said to him, do what you can. Do what you can, man. I know that in many spaces, there are some that might turn their theological noses up at a statement like that. Do what you can. But I really think that we can be so shackled by our own ideas of how we think things should be, so much so that we don't do anything. You know, we think that we should be in the Word and praying for an hour a day, or to give thousands of dollars to our church to solve homelessness in our cities, to raise up little disciples who follow Jesus. We think that we should be wonderful hosts and productive homemakers and model employees who change the workplace for good. But many of us, when we realize how finite we are and how limited we are, we opt for no minutes a day in the Bible. We opt to never open our homes. We miss tithing and don't give for months. We pass by homeless people and go weeks without reading the Bible to our kids. Many of us never host. We let our homes go. We slip in the quality of our work and allow ourselves to become lazy. And so, church, I want to ask this question to you, and I hope that you pursue its answer over the coming weeks. The question to you this morning is, what does faithful look like in your stage of life? What can you do? Who can you reach out to? What can you see? 
Who can you see and what is something that you can do with them even for a short amount of time? What days can you be free? What can you give to a sister or a brother in need? What can you give to your kids as you disciple them? I think we like to think about what we ought to do and really ask ourselves, what can I do? And I think if we shift, and this isn't me saying to lower your expectations or to not try as hard, but what I am saying is that there is grace for us. There is grace for us. We will one day be held accountable for our actions, church. And we should aim to be faithful however we can. However, there is grace for those of us who are exhausted. And though we cannot live how we want to ideally, the scriptures promise us that even with a little faith and even with a few loaves and even just a few fish, God can do powerful things for his kingdom. I said to John as we were leaving, I think he was on his way to class or something. I said, if everyone in our church did what they could versus what we hope we could, then I think our church would be a different place, right? If we did what we could. We are not asking everyone in this church to do everything. We're asking you to do what you can do, right? And I think that's what God's design is, right? Everyone to contribute how they can contribute. And so ask yourselves that question, what can you do? Church, remember, remember that our judge awaits us. But while we are on our way to our judge, let us remember that it is our shepherd who walks with us. And so to, into closing, I want to read Psalm 23, verses 1 to 3, and I hope that for, for us it is a balm to our souls. He has a high call for us. The scriptures teach us that who much is given, much is expected, right? But he also says that his yoke is light and that his... His load is easy, right? So this is what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I want you guys to go home and read the rest of that. Meditate on it as the week goes on. Our shepherd walks with us, amen, church? And he's gracious to us. But I believe that if we take serious this call that we will one day meet our maker and that he is calling us to great things and we do what we can while we are here, God can do powerful things through us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this scripture that you gave through your son Jesus. And you paint this powerful picture of how you will return one day with your angels and you will pour your wrath out on the world and you will judge us for all of the things that we have done, both good and evil and in between. God, I just pray that we would take it seriously, that we would not um, balk at this idea that you will return and that we will be held accountable for our actions. But I pray, God, that as we think about that, that we would not be crippled in despair by the fact that we are struggling in so many ways. God, if we are sinful, help us to repent. If we are tired, give us rest. If we are lonely, help us to come together. God, if we have any other needs, I pray that you would meet those needs. And I pray that we would, in our gratitude for how you shepherd us, that we would ask ourselves and ask you, what can we do? How can we serve? How can I help? God, I pray that you would use us, not from places of strength, but from places of weakness, because we are weak and we need you. But God, we believe in faith together this morning, that if we submit to you, that you can do great things through us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.